Paperman meets up to... Coming up, you'll hear Alan Shartok, Rosemary Armeo, Ira Fussfeld, and Mirak Smith with commentary on meeting issues of the week. We'll talk about this effort in Congress to provide some financial relief for local media in connection with the giant media. We'll talk about the coverage of Donald Trump is too much, too much. And we'll talk about that libel suit against the New York Times. Those topics and a lot more coming up on The Media Project next. They wallow in corruption. Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's going on in the news media these days, and we're... Happy to have you with us. For a bunch of veteran journalists, I'm Rex Smith, formerly the editor of the Times Union, now on Substack at the, the Upstate American. We have Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist, longtime editor and reporter and professor of journalism. We have Ira Fussfeld, former, now retired publisher of the Daily Freeman in Kingston. And we have Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, who has published a uh, Oh, never mind. There's just a lot to say about Alan, isn't there? How are you, Alan? After that, probably not too good. No. I was trying to think of how to describe the Legislative Gazette and the Fire Island uh, Sun. Citizen Times or whatever. The, uh, the sun, the sun, the sun. Of course, the sun was rising on Fire Island in those days, long ago and far away. Let's talk a little bit about this libel trial in which Sarah Palin is taking on the witness stand, uh, is taking on the New York Times. Have you been following that, Alan? You've been following what Sarah Palin is doing against the Times? Well, yes, I've been following it. And, you know, she's engaging in a trial, and it may cost the Times, considering the lay of the political land now. Perhaps you should explain it all, or Rosemary, to the group. Well, I can't explain it all. The cost would be to all of journalism, not simply to the New York Times, if she prevails. Most of the legal minds say she can't prevail. What she's testing is the notion of whether a newspaper or any media outlet can make a mistake and then not be charged with libel by the target of that mistake. She mm -hmm. was the target of an acknowledged error by the editorial pages of the New York Times. 
the editors quickly caught the mistake, corrected it, apologized for it. And that should have been the end of it. Under a 1964 law, Sullivan versus New York, that would have been the end of it. The only way in the United States, it's a very important law akin to the First Amendment, the only way a public official can sue a newspaper for writing something that's not right in the course of discussing political and public interest is if there's actual malice or if it's printed with reckless disregard for whether or not it's true. That does not appear to be the case here. But that's what she's trying to argue. She also cannot say in any way was her reputation, was her money. She was not damaged by this. So why it's actually in court is kind of a scary thing. At first, the judge dismissed it. The federal court then reinstated it and said they can go on. So if the experts are right and she loses it, she still has the right of appeal. And the real danger is if this gets to the Supreme Court, two of the conservative justices on the court, and we know now that there's a supermajority of six of them, two have already said they don't like that 1964 law. And we already know this is a court that has no problem getting rid of precedent, just like Roe v. Wade is under attack after 50 years. The 1964 law could be in trouble. And as Donald Trump has said, and these justices have repeated, newspapers just get away with too much, they say, and we have to rein them in. Now, the real interesting thing is that if that should happen, if the worst should happen, if all my worries come true, the Supreme Court rules against us, places likely to be most hurt are Fox News and other right-wing media, which you do not do the checking of the New York Times. They are more likely to make many more than the New York Times is. I think it's a very good and quite thorough analysis of this case. And that is sort of where the lay of the land is, that the greater peril actually might be to these outfits like Fox News or much more so even to Newsmax, to OAN and so on, that don't do the kind of meticulous fact-checking and don't try as hard to get matters straight in facts as the New York Times and typically newspapers do. But this has got to be perilous. I mean, Ira, I'd like to bring you in here as a publisher because once you moved from being the editor of the paper to being the publisher, you had to look at the business side of things. The simple fact of the matter is the editorial of the New York Times was wrong, and you don't want to be in a position, if you're watching the bottom line, of defending something that was wrong. So this has got to be perilous for the operation of the Times. Yeah, there's several threads, and, and Rosemary really described the, the overview very well, because I was going to say the real game here appears to be getting this to the Supreme Court, where they have a, a, a better than even chance of overturning any negative verdicts. But first of all, the New York Times made a mistake, and they apologized. And so under the law, they should be in the clear. I, I am just disturbed by the fact that the New York Times made such a horrendous mistake to get them in this kind of trouble to begin with. I mean, this is not a newspaper that just has one person writing it at editorial, and then it goes straight to the print. I mean, that's historically what could happen in smaller newspapers, but this is the New York Times. So it's disturbing to me. But as a publisher, I had a boss once, not the one that Rex might be thinking of, who the first year after I was editor, I went to a uh, budget meeting and the guy said, how are you doing? And I said, okay, we're keeping you out of court. And he says, well, if you're keeping us out of court, you may not be doing an aggressive enough job. So some, <laughs> some, CEOs, some CEOs like to see these libel actions. But the the fact of the matter is, while the New York Times can afford it, if a smaller publication is taken to court on a libel action, a frivolous libel action, it's still extremely costly in legal fees and in court fees, and it is a chilling effect if you are at risk. And we've had this protection from Sullivan versus New York Times for over half a century, and now it's very much in danger, and it's a concern. So what's the prognosis? Is this likely to be reversed? Is New York Times versus Sullivan likely to be reversed as it makes its way up? 
likely may not be positive enough, but if it reaches the Supreme Court, this Supreme Court, it's certainly possible it'll be overturned. I think most of the legal analysts are saying that it seems unlikely that this case will actually give Palin a verdict. What she's getting is the publicity. She's getting a chance to beat up the time. She's getting the right wing an opportunity to sound righteous, that look how terrible the times is. Just to recap, what actually happened was there was an editorial that incorrectly linked the shooting of Congresswoman Gabby Giffords in 2011 to a map that had been circulated by Sarah Palin's political action committee that showed certain electoral districts under crosshairs. Palin's PAC did, in fact, do a graphic, but it doesn't have a link to that shooting. And it was that link that was actually set up by James Bennett, the editorial page editor. He added that to the editorial as he was editing it on deadline. And, you know, I I note Ira saying, well, this shouldn't happen at the New York Times, but the fact is we forget that The Times has deadlines, as everybody else does, and trying to write an editorial on deadline and get it ready and get it distributed is a challenge for any organization. So Bennett was communicating with the original writer, the drafter of the editorial, via email and saying, sorry, I had to go in and do a lot of work on this one. I've done that sort of thing. I have made those kinds of changes to editorials and said to the writer of the editorial, I'm really sorry I had to to make a change here, but that is a level of sloppiness that you live in fear of actually executing, I think. There's no excuse for this. I do not think we should be at all apologetic to the New York Times. This is why they're in danger right now, because it was one man going in, Bennett, who had written other editorials about Palin and about right-wing politics. And that's why they're vulnerable, is because he went in and did exactly what you're saying, made a change without thoroughly checking it or even checking it out with the writer. He has since left the paper, which doesn't help their case either, for another problem that they had in the editorial department. And even his testimony in court was troubling. Did you apologize to Palin, asked her lawyer, meaning, of course, that he couldn't have because he wouldn't have asked a question if he had. He goes, well, I thought I had it, and I certainly think in this process I have. Come on. Uh This is no time to be proud about it. Yes, mistakes are made. They're only human. But he has now set up through this error a case. It's perfect for the Supreme Court, which is where the danger is. Sarah Palin is the perfect defendant with, uh, you know, a targeted, outspoken right winger and the New York Times, you know, the epitome of the legacy media. I do think it's going to be really difficult for the Supreme Court to turn down vacant. So here we are on the media project, uh, looking at, you know, the state of the media, assuming that Palin prevails here. For all of those who are listening, how dangerous is this for newspaper freedom in the United States? Super dangerous. It puts us in the rank of most other places in the world where you cannot make a mistake. The original case in 64 involved an incorrect telephone number and an incorrect position, a misstatement of a, a man's position, his job. And that is enough. In an advertisement, by the way. That was not in a an news adver- story. That was in an advertisement. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you make it that the press cannot make any mistake or they risk court action, which, as, as you pointed out, I was expensive even if you win the case. And Rooneyus, then how quick are we going to be to write stories, hard-hitting stories about politics and criticism of officials? We're not. It's very chilling. One other point that Rex made mentioned in passing about the Times writing that editorial on deadline. I mean, far be it from me, a small-town newspaper publisher, to advise the New York Times, but I can't remember uh, any time that we ran an editorial on deadline. We always gave ourselves a chance to take a deep breath, look at the issues, and make sure the editorial was accurate. And if somebody is doing that on deadline with a final edit, shame on them. 
I would add that the people who actually operate on deadline most frequently are cable television channels and digital outlets. But uh, there would be great risk to cable commentary. Actually, this may be the way to uh, put an end to those panels of commentators that uh, we see on cable television these days, which many of us decry as just being a cheap way for cable to uh, fill their airways. And that helps lead to the demarcation lines in American politics, because you would have the opportunity to sue people who make a rather casual, unscripted comment on cable television that may be perceived as libelous, may be perceived as having been reckless disregard for the truth. So there is real risk for everybody in the media from this, and it shows the difficulty. I mean, Alan, you've pointed to a, over the years to, I think, a you know justifiable concern that public officials – Public figures are at a disadvantage, I suppose, in some ways. I think I'm, I'm just trying to characterize your views. Mm -hmm. uh, you said that you think libel laws need to be tightened. But I think that it's a peril for all of us because, you know, we're unscripted on this show. What might we say that might be wrong, that might put us at peril? Yes. Of, so uh, watch, so, so watch your step. And, you know, joke. But I do think that this is a potential game changer for the media. Just remember that if you have deep pockets and you have a lot of money, just the fact that you're bringing a lawsuit, I think Rosemary has referred to this, can cost fifty, dollars $100,000 to begin with. And that is something that really uh, I think the public needs to understand. And if there's a financial yes, your deductible is typically $100,000. So you are out the first $100,000, or maybe you have a $50,000 deductible libel insurance policy. But you're mm -hmm. out that much from the get-go. And if more of these cases come along, it's going to be impossible to buy libel insurance. And it will actually, I think it will lead to more media outlets closing down. Speaking of media outlets closing down, here's an interesting statistic that we've talked about here before. Between 2005 and last year, about 2,200 local U.S. newspapers shut down. Most of those are you know, weekly, small papers, but uh, more than 100 dailies closed down. And while companies like Google's parent, Alphabet, have more than $200 billion in annual revenue, local newspapers' ad revenue declined from about $37 billion in 2018 to less than $9 billion wow. last year. This wow. is according to Pew Research uh, cited in the CNN story. So the state of local media is perilous. And to that comes a bill being uh, championed by Amy Klobuchar, who is chairing hearings on it, actually called the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act, which would let news outlets, regardless of their size, collectively bargain with advertisers so that they could actually have stronger negotiations against the Googles of the world. Seems like an interesting idea, don't you think? I'm a little puzzled by the details of it. It sounds like a good idea, and, and as they say about chicken soup, it can't hurt. But, you know, again, my frame of reference is smaller newspapers, whereas the larger newspapers from the Times Union on up typically have national ad managers who go out and negotiate separate deals. Smaller newspapers have historically been part of a company that they sign on to to do the national advertising negotiations for them. So, in a sense, what they're talking about here has been done, at least unless it's changed in the years that I've been out of the business. But we we always had a national sales representative company which negotiated pricing and advertising space for papers our size, which is the size of most newspapers in the country. That is the smaller one. Yeah. 
Absolutely. What this would, in effect, do then, Ira, is it would force negotiations so that the Googles of the world would be giving money to papers like yours, to newsrooms like WANC. But would it be a drop in the bucket? I mean, are you, we wouldn't turn it down if it was given to us in a check, but it's hard for me to imagine that Google or, the, or Facebook owe smaller newspapers a lot of money, or at least not enough money to make a dramatic difference in their bottom line. Maybe so. Maybe it's more window dressing than anything else. It is a bipartisan proposal. There are Republicans on the bill with Klobuchar, but it's an effort to sort of do a little bit anyway to try to preserve local newsrooms. I'm not opposed to the bill. I'm just skeptical as to how much help it would provide. And I would propose that we table this discussion until it actually makes it through the Senate, much less the entire Congress. I think it's like a snowball in a really hot place. No way. Well, that's interesting. So I would say that that's a lot of discussion that happens on the air a lot of the time, issues that have (laughs) less possibility of getting through than uh, this. So uh, apply that standard, only talk about things that are likely to pass politically. doesn't seem like a really good idea for commentary. Well, also... Also, there is the question as to why Klobuchar and others in the public eye are doing something that would be very helpful to newspaper and news outlets of one kind or another. Maybe they're just, you know, sort of fawning or trying to say, okay, I'm a good person, cover me well. Well, I think Klobuchar's concerns in co-sponsoring this legislation are real. Her father was a longtime newspaper man. She grew up with newspapers. So I don't doubt that she has legitimate concern. But again, I I hope it passes. And I I think Rosemary's right. As it gets a little bit closer to passing, that's when the Fox News or those who will oppose it will speak out loudest and perhaps scare some of the senators off who might have been willing to compromise. Probably so. So speaking of the topics that we maybe wonder if we ought to be talking about, interesting editorial by John Alsop, commentator in Columbia Journalism Review, whom we look at a lot, saying that it's time for us to stop talking about Donald Trump. You know, we've been hearing this for the last year or so. The fact is that, of course, he's no longer the president and no former president has ever gotten as much attention as this one does. Case in point being when Mike Pence, for example, stepped forward and said the president, quote-unquote, as he calls Trump, was wrong, that Pence did not have the right to vote to overturn the election. The media cast this as an extraordinary moment, a stunning rebuke, and so on. And, and I think the point of the question is, is there too much of a Trump fixation on the part of the media, or is it appropriate at this point it's for a- the guy who is the dominant force in the Republican Party who wants to run for president again to be covered a lot? I think you've just said it, Rex. This is the scariest guy. You know, I, I'm older now, and this is the scariest guy that I have ever seen. I do believe that if he has his way, we're going to enter into a different form of government, one which mirrors something like the old Soviet Union, the new Russia, the the Chinese. I think that this guy wants to be a, a dictator. And as you say, he is plotting a comeback. So if you don't expose that, if you don't explore it, you have made a major, major error, which could end up costing this country everything. Anyone else? Well, I agree with that. There's no way we can treat Trump like former past presidents. 
for all the reasons that Alan said. And I think unlike when he was running for president, particularly the first time, the media, particularly the cable media, is a little bit more reserved in how they cover him and how much free time and and inordinate amount of space they give him. But to not cover him, given the backdrop of what we've seen these last five years, would be a dereliction of duty on the part of the media. Wouldn't it have been great if they had covered Hitler just a little bit better? Indeed. What about holding local uh, or all other Republican officials to account on the question of whether January 6th was legitimate political discourse, as the Republican National Committee has declared? Is it appropriate for the media, for local reporters to be asking every Republican candidate, do you agree that the January 6th attack on the Capitol was legitimate political discourse? Isn't that a fair question? Darn right. Rosemary, if you're a local reporter, are you going to jump into that one? If you're, Are you going to be asking Republican candidates that? Absolutely. I, I immediately went, and of course there was stories about her, to Elise Stefanik, who's not my own congresswoman, but close enough. And I wanted yeah. to hear what she had to say. That vote represented the entire Republican Party, and that means they all are held up to it. And yeah, I want to know what they think about it. I also want to hear what the leaders of Black Lives Matters, name any activist group you want. That's my favorite one at the moment. What do they think about this? How does this change their tactics in the future? If the January 6th antics, smearing feces on a wall, that's legitimate political discourse. Ransacking offices, that's legitimate political discourse. I think they're now saying, oh, it was taken out of context. I don't know what the heck context that works in. But at any rate, it is an outrageous statement. And yes, we ought to be holding the press, ought to be holding a mirror up to every official who is a Republican. So, Alan, what about the news organization WAMC? Uh, what about you it? think that that's going to be something that you'll be asking every Republican candidate you deal with? Well, I am not the news director, but I would certainly hope so. I would certainly hope that that would happen and that people would ask that question because I think it's germane to the future of the country. I do, too. The problem is it will make a lot of people angry. We've already seen leading Republican candidate for governor of Illinois literally walked out of a press conference when a reporter asked him that question. And I think what's going to happen is there will be further isolation, further demarcations of the line left and right in media outlets. And we will see that a lot of the Republican candidates are going to be accusing anybody who asked that question of being part of the left. But it's interesting because I think most Americans, at least if you believe polls, are unhappy with what happened on January 6th, even though the percentage of adults who say Trump had a lot of responsibility for the Capitol riot, according to brand new polling, has really dropped. You know, back in January 21, only about a quarter of the people in America, the American voters, said that Trump had no responsibility. Now a third say he had no responsibility at all. Among Republicans, 57 percent say that Donald Trump had no responsibility at all for what happened on January 6th. There is a clear partisan line there. I don't get it. We saw the man standing up there. We saw him saying, get down to the Capitol and fight like hell. And I'm going with you lying, of course, one more time. And he signed his own warrant there. I mean, there's no question he was telling them what to do. So the idea that somehow, you know, a large swath of the American people think he had nothing to do with it is perplexing, at least to me. Well, there was also a poll released this week that showed 
the majority of Americans of all political stripes and particularly independents were not in favor of Trump's notion of pardoning these people if he was to be reelected. And as Rex points out, whether or not media should be relying on polling as much as we have historically done, you can be sure that the politicians are looking at the polling. And I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing some of these U.S. senators as we speak, and even Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, starting to back off on this legitimate political discourse idea. They realize that most people in this country do not agree with that position. This is a project, but I actually think a lot of this and what we're seeing in the polls is the result of political activity, not media activity. That January 6th committee in Congress is extremely partisan. So it almost feels loyal for a Republican to say, no, I don't believe it. Trump's not the one. That's not a media result. That's politics. Right. And the committee gets only a certain amount of coverage, you know, and people hear nothing about it, of course, if they are Fox News viewers. And even people who are regular on CNN will not hear that much about it or won't read it in newspapers, though it may get sort of breathless attention from those of us who really pay attention to this sort of thing, from those of us who are concerned. The average American voter is not actually hearing that much from the January 6th committee or is discounting it, is assuming, as you say, Rosemary, that it's quite partisan, only two Republicans on it, and they have been basically excommunicated from the party. So it's going to change when it goes public, and they will have public hearings in the early spring And that will expose it to people who perhaps don't even know what's going on right now. So we don't know what the dynamic will be at that point. We don't know how much coverage there will be and how people will react and where the money will go. Because as Alan often points out, it is the big money that powers the messaging, often overpowering legacy media. And of course, you see the Tucker Carlson's of the world who will do all they can to denounce this kind of activity and to further such questions as vaccine reliability and so on. In that regard, anybody want to predict how this truck cavalcade is going to go down in America? What kind of response Americans will have when this Canadian blockade of truckers starts having an effect in America? How's this going to play in the American media? The sides are already drawn, so we know how Fox News will play it versus how MSNBC will play it. The American public, I think, overall will be, if if in fact they are as inconvenienced as is what is happening on the bridges in and out of Canada, most people in this country, I believe, will be outraged. There's nothing wrong with protest. There's nothing wrong with civil disobedience. But if it starts interfering with the day lives of people, I think it's not going to do the truckers' cause any good. I'm not sure it's going to rise yeah. to the same Canada in the United States because we're already seeing governors, including Democratic governors, caving on mandates and taking away uh, mass mandates and distancing mandates. And so that kind of takes away the whole impetus for the big fight. The kind of protest with those truckers, if in fact it is deemed successful because these regulations are changing, that could mean the blueprint for future protests down the road. I mean, as we speak, uh, the Super Bowl is going on this weekend, and there was one story that some sort of protest similar to Canada was going to occur on Super Bowl weekend. So let, let's see if in fact that plays out. Protest over what? Over whatever. I think the notion is the people who feel they have a cause to protest like this form of protest because they see it's impactful. Alan, you're going to join the protest? You're not going to go along with the truckers, I presume. No. Um, <laughs> you know, and also there is some question as to what the media responsibility is here. In other words, this was a good story. It was the kind of story that, you know, media like to pick up. 
it is not quite man bites dog, but it is uh, it is a little bit unusual, and therefore it gets an awful lot of attention. I don't know if it's attention that it deserves because I don't think all truckers are in on it. And that will have to do it for this week. We are out of time, so Alan gets the last word. Ah, well. So we thank you for joining us. Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Rosemary Armeo, and me, Rex Smith. We're grateful to our producer, David Gustina, and especially to you for joining us here this week on The Media Project. Just for romance, but finally the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, professor emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Albany Times Union. Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. And Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of The Daily Freeman. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go To working folks, for readers, and to big shots for their dough Now publishers are such interesting people It could be prostitution, I don't know Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling Advertising, get those readers, get that payoff What a headache, what a mess Oh, publishers are such interesting people Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press